Welcome to Israel War Briefing, a podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. In each episode, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. Today is Friday, November the 24th, the 48th day of the war, and I'm joined by Richard Pater, the director of BICOM, the British-Israel Communications and Research Centre. Uh, now, Richard is, um, he joined BICOM from the Israeli Prime Minister's office, where he spearheaded the engagement with the foreign press. Following the Second Lebanon War, he received the Prime Minister's Prize for Excellence. He served in the IDF Armoured Brigade, where he twice received commendations and continues to serve in the reserves. Though, Richard, I'm not sure that you're, you've been called up just yet. No, with the reserve of the reserves, I think. Uh, we haven't been haven't been called up yet. And as you can imagine, uh, my day job keeps me quite busy and focused. So that's kind of been uh, kind of taking up taking up my time, all my time. Right. OK. Well, thank you for, for joining us on the, at this very busy and stressful period. Um, first of all, let's talk about the latest with regard to the hostage uh, negotiations. What What's going on right now? So right now we're in this very strange uh, waiting period. The uh, the ceasefire or the the, the the pause in the fighting, as the IDF are stressing, came into effect early this morning, seven o'clock local time. There was one rocket uh, fired out of Gaza towards the Gaza periphery uh, a few minutes afterwards, which was shot down by the Iron Dome. And since then, it's been it's been quiet. According to the uh, the framework of the agreement, we're waiting until four o'clock local time which is another three and a half hours time as we're speaking, for the first batch of 13 hostages to be released. There's obviously a lot of a lot of tension here. I mean, I think it's palpable. I was just out in Jerusalem this morning and, and kind of everyone is conscious, look, almost looking at their watches, waiting, will it actually happen? There's obviously a great deal of distrust and cynicism towards Hamas. Um, but we're waiting to see what will happen this afternoon. I mean, I'm sure there will be pictures, although we won't get the Israeli media Obviously, in the world media, will be uh, super interested to to extract and hear the stories of the people that are coming out. But we understand they're first going to be taken to medical facilities. They'll be reunited with their families and go through all sorts of uh, both physical and uh, mental tests as well. And do we know the names that are on that list of first the, the first thirteen? The, the I have not seen the names. I've not seen the names published. I mean. I mean it is out there. I think I think some of these Israeli media have been given them, but it's still under embargo. And until they are returned into into Israel, we won't then we then then I imagine we'll get the details of exactly who who was uh, th- fortunate to be in that first batch. And do, do you think that from Hamas's point of view, there's a distinction between the hostages that have become the most high profile? I'm thinking of the little baby Kfir, uh, maybe foreign nationals like Emily Hand, the Irish girl and others and others uh, that, that are less high profile. Do you think it, that's part of their calculation? No, I think Hamas have a different set of criteria in terms of who they regard as the high values, and they make a, they make a distinction 
basically between the soldiers and the uh, and, and the civilians. And like we've had in Israel for almost a decade, the bodies of two IDF soldiers that they've that they've held that continues to be kind of their their highest assets, primarily because they understand that they can extract from Israel the greater concessions with regard to the prisoners and the the terrorists, the murderers that they have serving in Israeli prisons um, that they want to see released. Now, one of those uh, two bodies which have which been held by Hamas for nine years is Hadar Goldin, as far as I understand, uh, who was a soldier who was ambushed during the last Gaza war in 2014 in contravention of a UN-brokered ceasefire. Do you think that that's weighing on the minds of, of IDF commanders at the moment? Very much so. Very much so that that's kind of conscious that you know, Hamas is a vicious enemy, that nothing is, nothing kind of... the. The way that they manipulate and use their own civilian population and will continue to use psychological warfare against Israel and real kinetic warfare, that remains a concern. And Israel has made it clear that they will remain in battle positions, especially in the north half of Gaza, and they will remain there throughout this pause. But there is obviously high level of vigilance and concern that the Hamas will use this opportunity to attack and uh, and, and kind of extract further painful, painful uh, measures against Israel. Now, what's the what's the um, what part do you think the psychological torture that Hamas is trying to mete out on the Israeli families and the public? What part do you think that plays in Hamas's tactics and strategy? We've seen, for example, the Israelis uh, insisting that families were not broken up. So hostages from the same family were released together rather than uh, one uh, one of them and keeping the other in captivity because the latter scenario would, would mean there's still a family in pain. Um, what, what do you think Hamas's thoughts are with regard to that? So although this hasn't been kind of formally declared, my understanding was that Israel built that into the uh, into, into their agreements, that there wouldn't be any separation of mothers and their children. There will be separation, sadly, from, uh, from the fathers and potentially from older children as well that may be in kind of military serving age and and older um but israel kind of fully aware of that exact point of cynicism have kind of closed that loophole apparently so there won't be a case of mothers and children um separated and do you think that shows that hamas are motivated to keep up the political pressure coming from the families of the hostages on the prime minister to try to curtail his his desire his appetite for further military operations I mean, that's. I think that's an element of it, an element of, of Hamas' agenda. But I also think it speaks to a degree about the pressure that Hamas is under itself, especially from the external leadership of Hamas and that relationship, that interface between Qatar and the US as well. Um, there's been a lot of a, a lot of discussion here, kind of about the role that Qatar is playing. Um, that obviously, kind of in a bigger picture, play a very duplicious and dangerous role within within the uh, within the region more widely. But in this specific case, at the moment, they're kind of the, the the carrot is prevailing over the stick. But the idea is that at some point, the US has what to pressure the Qataris on as well. And and the, and I think even from the Qataris' perspective, there is also a, a little modicum of understanding of the sensibilities and sensitivities of just how horrific this is to hold, as you said before, kind of 10-month-old babies, etc., is kind of beyond beyond comprehension for anyone with a, with a, with any sense of humanity. So is that so? The, the summary of that point is that Hamas are you know playing around with people's emotions and uh, and agony. Um, 
how is that being seen by the Qataris and by the Americans? What in the wider international scene? How is that being taken, and what does it mean? I mean, so I think it's accepted. It's kind of uh, priced into the uh, priced into the game, and 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 the, and that the uh, at the moment, unfortunately, whether we this is this is part of the part of Israel's failure from October the seventh is the price that they're having to pay now. Um, there is kind of a, a crude reality to that, that uh, and all these failures will be discussed at length um, after, afterwards. But just as a small token of the price is what we're seeing being paid out now with the release, obviously, of 150 uh, Palestinian prisoners. So that's, I think, part of the uh, part of that wider the wider thinking as well. And if from Israel's perspective, they've taken this dual approach of applying military pressure in order to squeeze Hamas. And that was also part of the deliberations over the last few days within the Israeli government. How much more can they can they push on? Can can they push on militarily to put the squeeze to extract better concessions in this deal? But the consensus was by the military establishment and the political establishment by and large that you know that because the the, the humanita- humanitarian case is so severe that it demands kind of this immediate uh, deal with the devil. Now let's turn to the Israeli side then, because it seems that in the immediate aftermath of October the seventh, that was a it was a paradigm shift. It was a it was a reset for the Israeli security strategy and assum- assumptions. Um, and a, a few things happened then. One one was that no longer would the hostages be the same lever. Uh, over Israel as there had been in the past. We saw a thousand, more than a thousand released for Gilad Shalit. That wasn't going to happen again because the overriding goal was to destroy Hamas for the sake of Israel's future. But the other was that a very divided country unified. Suddenly, the uh, the, the stuff that we were all talking about eight weeks ago is a distant memory. But it seems to me that over the issue of the hostages over the last couple of weeks, those two things have returned We've seen a division between the right and the left with regard to the hostages and the concessions that should be made to secure the hostages and how the goal of destroying Hamas should be placed maybe secondarily, secondarily, at least for now, behind getting the hostages back. Um, And I'm picking up, I think the polling has, has shown that as well. And I'm picking up people on the right in particular, really worried that this ceasefire will be the first of a cascade of ceasefires that will lead to the government caving to international pressure, losing its bottle and not finishing the job. Now, the October the 7th attacks really changed the Israeli paradigm a lot. One way in which it changed it was that it unified a divided country. All the stuff we were talking about eight weeks ago, judicial reforms and protests, suddenly was a distant memory and the country came together. Also, the old hostage doctrine was abandoned. No, no longer would a thousand hostages be released, a thousand prisoners be released from one hostage, as had been the case with Gilad Shalit. Um, and, and yet, there are fears, aren't there, that this ceasefire will be the first of many that may lead to the prime minister abandoning or stepping back from his goal to destroy Hamas. Um, do you think that's realistic? So two points. First of all, you're absolutely right that the country is exhibiting fantastic efforts of fortitude and unity and cohesion right now. But of course, as Israeli societies want to do, there are always debates still, and that uh, certainly came to the surface much more in recent days over the issues of the uh, of the hostage exchange. However, I think there is still that unity of purpose, the duality of both having to. Uh, 
release as many as many hostages as possible, whilst at the same time completely destroying Hamas militarily and their political control. And so there is a wide consensus that understands, at least internally in Israel, that that can't be done with the job half finished. I think they've made remarkable progress so far in the north, but all of all of the Hamas senior leadership remains in the south. There is still remains 10 out of 24 Hamas battalions are pretty much unharmed in terms of command and control in the south of Gaza, particularly in Khan Yunis, particularly in, in, in Rafah. And so there is a broad Israeli understanding that this is only a, a temporary cessation. Hopefully it can last a few days. I mean, obviously, four days has been it's been scheduled so far. There is built in mechanism to extend that. And I think people, if you can get 10 hostages a day and you can last it for out for a week, I think the numbers are estimated to be about 80 women and children altogether. If it can stay for that long and, and, and get get all the women and children out, that would be fantastic. But at the end of the day, the, uh, the the military campaign will then continue. As I said before, troops remain in battle positions on the ground. And I think the least kind of the most important barometer in terms of international legitimacy is, is the White House. It almost crudely speaking, it begins and ends there. And I have a lot of respect and admiration for the British government and the stance that they've that they've taken in this. We saw yesterday the visit of, uh, of Lord Cameron. Um, but bottom line, it's really the, the White House that, 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 that matters and only only matters. And at the moment, the sounds coming out of the White House support and, uh, and understand Israel's agenda here. And in a way, the, 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 the pause in the fighting now gets the hostages, some hostages back, we hope, but also satisfies some uh, energy from the White House, some desires from the White House uh, to see some humanitarian aid going into Gaza. Um, yeah, Absolutely. So let's let's talk a little bit then about uh, the Israeli position and the, the the price that Israel is paying through this ceasefire. Uh, I mentioned earlier Hadar Goldin, who was ambushed and ambushed and killed when Hamas broached a ceasefire back in 2014. Um, I think there's a misconception in the West that a ceasefire, Israel will just stop and then that's it, static. But actually, with every hour that goes by, if you're not manoeuvring, if you're not going on the offensive against the enemy, you're falling into um, a, a less advantageous position. By uh, as Hamas continued to gather intelligence and to prepare the battlefield in advance of the next of the next uh, move. So that, listen, that's clearly a concern, and but I think I think Israeli planners practitioners have built that in. They understand that the staff and the static positions are, are are there. They've been reinforced. They have kind of they have good visuals, and 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 obviously you know the fear remains obviously because of the subterranean threat. But but we saw yesterday the IDF announced 400 um, shafts of tunnels have been have been um, found and uh, and decommissioned this morning before the uh, before the ceasefire came into effect. The tunnels underneath the Chief Hospital that were exposed just in the last couple of days have also been destroyed. I think one of the sensitive issues in the north of Gaza, in, as my understanding this morning, are um, the Gazan population who hid out in, in public buildings, in school, in UN compounds, left their home, but didn't, didn't flee to the south. They are now coming out of their, of their safe hiding and returning to their neighbourhoods. And that's, that, that's sensitive because there is, again, the, 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 the challenge between maintaining the distinction between a civilian population, but fearful that within that population, Hamas non-uniformed combatants could try a uh, an, an element of surprise and attack. So that's the 11th of uh, vigil, vig, uh, vigilance now. 
Right. So I'll come back to that point in a minute. But before I do, you've got a rather fine map of of uh, of Gaza behind you. Can you just I mean, I know that this is um, it, it's being video, but it's also going out as an audio only podcast. So bridging those two requirements, uh, are you able to give us a sense of where the Israeli troops are now, what progress they have made and where the bastions of Hamas are still holding out? Sure. So I'll apologise, first of all, for, for viewers, that this is a very old map. I don't know if you can see, but it, it dates from deliberately from May 2005. Therefore, it includes this blue areas of where the Jews, uh, the Israelis used to have Jewish settlements within the Strip. Um, 22 different small isolated communities around a population of 8,000. And again, compounding the issue, I know you know this, but for 17 years, they, the, the IDF uh, withdrew all those, all those uh, the Jewish population, and they are there no longer. So you have to ignore that. But in any case, we're really talking about when Israel went in on the ground operation that started three weeks ago, they went in in two positions, over here in the corner, around Bet Hanun, and around here, just above the... Uh, the uh, Sorry, can you just point the, to Bet Hanun uh, again, with your, your head got in the yes. way slightly. Sorry, this <laughs> is on this, on, this, on, this, yeah. on this corner here. And, and around here, halfway through. What was interesting, the, and so they went in, in two movements like this and made it to the sea within two or, three, two or three days and then slowly closed in on Gaza City here from, the, from both sides, surrounded it. And then and over the last few days, they've been sweeping up in kind of this area over here, which is uh, the areas of, of Zaytun and Jabalia and Shijaiya. And the Shijaiya areas is, is significant because if you remember in 2014, the military operation that was had a ground a ground incursion then looked very different. Then they went in in kind of a a, a broad swathe about three kilometres deep to there, and this is where they got stuck in the fighting. So this time around, having learnt those lessons, they they circumvented it in a pincer movement, surrounded it, and have now coming from the west over to the eastern neighbourhoods and are sweeping up. And again, according to the the military briefings that I've had, they estimate twenty four battalions over the whole of the strip. 14 in the north, 10 in the south, 10 have been, and I wrote this in your in your paper this weekend, um, 10 have been kind of um, compromised in terms of their command and control. And that this corner here are the four that remain that are basically have been swept up and have been have been engaged with over the last uh, few days. Right. So for people who didn't have the benefit of visuals, uh, Richard, oh, was, sorry. Was, no, it's all right. No, it's good. Um, just to <laughs> summarise, so there were two incursion points in the north that were uh, to the left and the right, uh, they both went across, straight across to the sea, curved around in a pincer movement to contain Gaza City, and then it's been uh, a case of mopping up the resistance around around that area that's been basically sealed and, and enclosed. And just, and I think just, 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 just sorry, just to add to that, my understanding is that the the extent extensive nature of the tunnels basically allowed uh, underground interconnectivity between the different battalions. So that what you had is when Israel was fighting at the initial stage, some people were kind of popping up with uh, with uh, anti-tank missiles, firing at an Israeli position, and then and then uh, then hiding back down under the ground. Some of those were caught, engaged, either captured, arrested, or killed. But others, kind of smaller cells, were then able to use the tunnel network to hide off and to rejoin other battalions. So that's where that's where the fighting has focused in the last day or two. Right. So you went through a lot of figures there. So let me, let me just slow down a bit and, and, and yeah. communicate this to, to listeners. because I think it is it, really valuable. So the total number of Hamas battalions in action in the beginning of the war was was what? 24. 24. And how big is a battalion? 
None of they're not all unitary. This is not as much as they have shown military capabilities and command structures. There are some, let, let's say on average, around a thousand, a thousand fighters in each one. But some are, some could be two or three thousand. Some could only be a, a few hundred. Okay. And these these battalions were spread across North and South Gaza. To begin yeah, with. they're geographic. They're geographic battalions that take over the whole, the, the, the kind of extend over the whole of the Gaza Strip. And were they all underground? No, I mean they have a combination of factors. Some of them often have there are lookouts, and some of them have buildings. Some of them, some of them were also the uh, kind of doubled up as the homes of some of the senior commanders, and then had infrastructure underneath. And again, some of the things that the troops have found just in the last uh, day or two is kind of hordes of rockets being hid under the beds and children's bedrooms and in mosques um, and in other kind of in schools, kind of every bit of civilian civilian um, purpose buildings that were meant to be immune from anything militarily have been have been subverted by the Hamas and deliberately ch- chosen to, uh, to store weapons and uh, to be firing positions as well. Right. Now, the Israeli uh, operation so far has been remarkably quick and effective. Um, a snapshot now, there's a ceasefire. What level of disarray does Hamas now find itself in, given that it started off with these 24 battalions spread across the street? So, so our, underst- our understanding is, is that, as I said, of the 14 battalions in the north half, 10 have been kind of, have had their operational and command structure compromised. That's not meant to say they're totally destroyed, but they have, that they're no longer functioning, functioning as they did before the, before the war. Um, I've, I mean, we are all waiting for more accurate idea figures on the fatalities and, and on kind of their successes in targeting combatants. We don't have that. The, the kind of the closest we've got are comments that uh, several thousand have been have have been killed, but we don't yet have uh, precise numbers. Okay, which which then leads me to to my next and final question or final area to talk about, which is what's coming next. Uh, so, presumably, I mean, there's there's a there's an idea around that many many of Hamas's key uh, figures and fighters, including Yahya Sinwar, have moved to the south, where the civilians have been told to hide. Um, how can this battle be? How can this war be won? So every briefing that I have with the IDF, they they caution that this is a long campaign that can take months. It may not look in the same characteristics as we've as we've seen in the first few weeks it may it may change shape but at some point it's it's uh it's impossible to imagine any inconceivable any other way that ground forces will need to enter into the south of the gaza strip we've already seen signs of as as again israel always scrupulously covers a policy of distinction that they will ask the civilian population to leave an area which effectively gives also the hamas gunmen advance notice of where the attack's coming from that's the nature of fighting uh, an ethical war, even in uh, in heavy urban areas. So the civilian population are being asked to leave Western Khan Yunis, which is uh, which is just down here. So you can see it's kind of deep into the heart of the centre. So the west of the city are being are being asked to to evacuate already. Presumably, that after the ceasefire, that will then be that will then begin a, some form of a ground operation in those areas. And if they can't do the same as the north, at least they can they can, they can, they can make some inroads there. In fact, there was some I read some criticism this morning to say that the IDF would have had the capacity to have done both at the same time. That with that with with regarding the, the success in the north, they really should have started the campaign in the south already a week ago. 
and and made some inroads there. They haven't done that yet. They've done it. They've done it by by the, an, an aerial bombing campaign. Last night they announced uh, the head of the Hamas Navy was uh, was killed and targeted. I would say that's kind of a second rank. I mean, that's like a, a level of an equivalent of a of a military general, not the top top tier of the Hamas leadership, but kind of the second level down of senior military commanders. And so that will, uh, I, I presume, be continued to be their target. And if you look here, ironically, the area here on the coast, which uh, used to be the Jewish, uh, the Jewish settlement 17 years ago, it's 17 years ago, is the Al Mawasi area. And this is a, this is an area of several kilometers long, which is considered the safe zone. And that's the area where they're encouraging all the civilian. And that's the area where the humanitarian aid coming in from Egypt, from Rafah, will be heading to the Mawasi to service that civilian population. And there's been some thought that uh, maybe some aid, foreign aid ships might anchor just there in that zone, including a French ship, perhaps, to provide aid from the sea to, to guards and civilians over there. Yeah, my understanding is both the French and the Italian Navy um, have offered that. There is also conversations um, with the uh, with the uh, Cypriot government to try and establish a, a sea corridor for humanitarian aid. Um, and so that's also in terms of a, a longer a longer plan looking forward. Again, you'll rem you'll remember, um, of course, that up until October the sixth, part of the failed conception was that Israel was giving hundreds of trucks a day of uh, all sorts of good and produce going into Gaza, as well as fuel, electricity. Everything was supplied by Israel. And after the horrific uh, October attack, this can be no more in the in the day in the day in the day after. So there has to be some form of new mechanism to allow the civilian population to get the supplies in. So as you say, one of the routes being considered is some form of of naval uh, naval naval passageway, which hopefully again will service the uh, and and help alleviate the suffering on the Palestinian side. Right. So, um, in terms then of 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 the the final. The, the end game, the final destruction mm. of Hamas, when Israel can say mission accomplished in the in the perhaps ironic words of George W. Bush all those years ago on that aircraft carrier. Um, uh, what does that look like? I mean, you've got you've got Hamas fighters who are blending in with the civilian population um, who can move around without being detected. That's a difficult enemy to finish off. Is the first strategic objective to destroy all of the tunnels, which is really their that will remove their capacity to form any kind of meaningful military uh, assault, and to then deal with the counterinsurgency threat as it would on the West Bank or anywhere else? Is that the general gist of how this is going to go? I think, in broad terms, yes. I do think that Israel, Israel, I mean, the victory picture was looked like, and this is kind of. This is what we used to talk about after rounds of guards. And because of the, the scale of this, victory pictures are a little bit simplistic and, uh, and not, the, not the, the perfect prism in which to judge this because it will be it needs to be kind of a root and branch treatment. But only when civilian population of the, the Gaza border neighbourhoods are able to come back and return at, at peace with their, with their families will that really signify kind of the, uh, a successful operation. Um, in more practical terms, before we get to that stage, um, crudely speaking, the Hamas leadership, those people that are kind of known within the Israeli public discourse of uh, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Diaf, and and others of the of the senior of the senior leadership, need to be need to be targeted and and crudely they need they need to, they need to be killed in order to prove that the Hamas leadership is over. And we've already seen signs, by the way, from some of the uh, 
Palestinian civilian population that have been waving the white flag and have been kind of, for the first time in years, been able to finally talk out and express their disdain for Hamas. Obviously, there is a hope that more of that, the, the weaker Hamas is, the more civilian voices in, 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 inside Gaza will be heard to say just what to damage, that this is all of this horrific situation is brought about by Hamas and that they are seen as to be the, the responsible party. And then, of course, the hope, and this is the big, the big if, is that the Israeli government has no desire to stay in Gaza in the long term. No one is, no one serious is talking about a reoccupation. That's not on the Israeli, the, the Israeli agenda. Although I will caveat and say that it's likely that the military presence and freedom of operation is likely to last for months, maybe even up to a, a year. Who knows how, how much longer? So we should caution that. But at, at some ultimate end game, a mechanism needs to be found to return civilian power and control to a non-Hamas affiliated authentic Palestinian leadership. And that will be a huge challenge for Israel and the and the international community. Right. I mean, just on, on that point about uh, Palestinian anger towards Hamas, uh, as you as I may have mentioned to you before, um, from my days as a foreign correspondent, I've got an old colleague uh, in, in Gaza, a Palestinian colleague, and I've spoken to him on the phone actually just the other day. I was waiting for the train in Winchester and he phoned me up from Khan Yunis um, and, uh, and told me that, uh, that there's a lot of anger, as he said, as he described it, amongst Palestinians. Everyone's angry with Hamas. Um, he actually was... Um, quite sympathetic towards the, the the IDF. He was saying, you know, good on the IDF for, for, for taking on this battle. I just want security for my kids in the future and it cannot happen under Hamas. Um, so I think, you know, he was speaking to me sotto voce over the phone using code words, not saying the word Hamas, but I think it's representative of a groundswell of feeling, which there's no, no opinion polls will represent this, of course, but there is a sense that that's beginning to rise. That's got to be a bad thing for Hamas as well. Well, exactly. I mean, this is hopefully we'll hear more and more of these voices. And I think one of the one of the indicators of Israeli success will be the that they've lived under a totalitarian regime. Let's be clear for the last 17 years. There's been no no freedom that whenever foreign media has gone in to do those interviews on the streets, every interview is conscious of what the uh, of what the response will be to any Hamas uh, um, Hamas awareness of any form of criticism. So that's going to be a really important indicator to look at in the next uh, in, the, in the in the next period ahead, how confident they feel about speaking out against Hamas. Um, we also understand kind of in the wider Arab world, there is also no love lost for Hamas as well. Because you know it is a it is a twisted version. This is not true Islam. And I think for all of us that believe in coexistence and a future of Jewish Arab uh, partnership and cooperation, understand that, this, that Hamas is a radical Islamist ideology that is not authentic to a peace-loving religion. And so Israel has, has many important partners, I hope, amongst the Palestinians, but certainly wider afield within the region, that we are part of a pragmatic, moderate camp. You know, the examples of the Abraham Accords countries and the way that they have accepted the authentic role that Judaism has always been a part of the region. That very kind of obvious but sensible and brave acknowledgement is what we need to see more from Arab leaders going forward and hopefully indigenous amongst the Palestinians as well. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. In fact, it seems to me sometimes from Britain that there's more support for Hamas on the streets of London than there is in the Arab world. Um, uh, last question, Richard. Um, just oh, sorry, that's a really that's a, that's a really important point, by the way, that I'm sure is missed by many. That you do not see that level of support in our in Arab capitals, with regard, except for the the Shiite axis of resistance that is that is part of that anti-Israel um, 
terrorist supporting world, the rest of the Arab world is they, of course, they respect and acknowledge the Palestinian suffering, but they make a clear distinction that is not about support for Hamas. Sobering, sobering thought. Um, just a, a final question, uh, Richard. Uh, outside of, of Israel and Palestine, further afield across the Arab world, I was wondering, as part of dismantling and destroying Hamas, would you expect to see some high-profile Hamas um, Mossad assassinations of Hamas figures, the like of which we we saw that one in in Dubai a few years ago, with where the, where the um, spies dressed up as tennis players and went and and killed that 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 Hamas chap. Do you think we'll see more of that? Well, I don't see us see Israel carrying out those sort of attacks in in friendly countries. Now that Israel has peace with uh, with the Emirates, operations in Dubai, I think, are are off the agenda. Um, the the question is, is okay. and I don't even. I mean, Turkey. So, I mean, Turkey is certainly a potential, but I think most of the Hamas leadership are either these days in Lebanon or in Qatar. Um, with maybe 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 a little bit coming back now. It's amongst Islamic Jihad, actually, within Damascus and southern and there's southern quite a lot, Syria. It's quite a lot in Turkey, though, particularly the financial operations in Turkey and Istanbul. Yeah, I, but I don't I don't think that they're going to be targeted. So I think Israel Israeli Turkish relations. I mean, that's a whole other whole other podcast conversation. Mm. But Israel-Turkey relations are a little bit more complicated than I think that Israel is, is comfortable to carry out uh, attacks there. Either way, I think that Israel has their hands full with, with kinetic activity more locally. And I don't expect Mossad to operate kind of immediately, uh, immediately across the region. I mean, again, just to compound this issue, that you have the head of Mossad in Qatar in negotiations with the Qatari prime minister and alongside the uh, CIA representatives of the U.S., whilst at the same time, British Israeli politicians are talking about exactly what you asked, about the idea that no Hamas, that every Hamas target internationally is also, is, is also a target. And I think that that caused a little bit of disquiet internally about the timing of those sorts of announcements. And because of the role that Qatar is playing within the hostage scenario, whilst that process is still playing out, I don't see any immediate um, targeting of, of Hamas abroad. But again, but to repeat the Prime Minister, that threat in the longer term should re should remain on the table. And and I and if there is, then the, the hostage issue, I think, is, you know, that balancing and sequencing is very careful and, uh, and, and fragile right now. But that's the priority. The assassinations may come later. Right, I suppose uh, sooner or later we'll see a reckoning, a sort of post-Munich style reckoning, perhaps uh, across across the Middle East. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time. It's been instructive and illuminating as ever, and I hope to welcome you back on the podcast soon. With pleasure. Always, always good to see you. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.